We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. So, tonight, I want to talk a little bit about your freedoms and why they are under assault. They're under assault from a variety of groups, from motivated thinkers on a bunch of political sides, but most of all, they are under assault from advocates of identity politics, people who believe that their version of social justice should override individual rights. These are the folks who are really dangerous to your rights. Now, to understand the current assault on individual rights, we first have to understand there are two contrasting visions of rights in the United States and in the West generally. So one vision of rights is the negative rights vision. The negative rights vision basically says that rights come from God. They are inalienable, they come from God or nature, as expressed in the Declaration of Independence. They are self-evident, and these are the rights that you would have in a state of nature meaning you and your family live somewhere without a government, what are the rights that you have as a human being in the absence of a government? So, for example, you have a right to self-defense, you have a right to free speech. Nobody is allowed to actually infringe on those freedoms because in a state of nature, if somebody tried to do that, you would defend yourself from that sort of imposition. Those are negative rights. Then there's another vision of rights. These are positive rights. So positive rights are rights that come from government. The idea is that there are no rights outside of a collective that gives you the right. So if you have a right to property, that's only because the government is letting you have property. If you have a right to free speech, it's only because the government allows you to speak freely. But all rights in the end only come from the collective. They only come from government. There are no pre-existing individual rights in a state of nature or anything like that. Negative rights are rights that you have from the intervention of others. Positive rights are rights that you have from the goods and services of others. So, for example, I have a right to defend my own life, I have a right to self-defense. That is a negative right, because it's a right to defend my life from the imposition of others. A positive right is the idea that you have a right to walk into my store and demand a service of me. That's a positive right, because you really don't have that right in the state of nature. I'd get to make a contract with you. If you chose to make that contract with me, then we'd have a deal. But you don't have a right to my services. Positive rights suggest that you do have a right to stuff from me. So, for example, a right to health care requires that there be a doctor that you can force care from. When we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Good morning and welcome to Odyssey on WBEZ Chicago 91.5 FM. And we're joined by Barack Obama, who is Illinois State Senator from the 13th District and a senior lecturer in the law school at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if you look at um, the, the, the victories and failures of the civil rights movement um, and its litigation strategy in the court, I think where it succeeded was to vest formal rights uh, in uh, previously dispossessed peoples so that uh, I would now have the right to vote I would now be able to sit at a lunch counter and, and order and as long as I could pay for it I'd be okay uh, but the Supreme Court never ventured into the issues of redistribution of wealth uh, and sort of more basic issues of political and, and, and uh, economic justice in the society and uh, to that extent as radical as I think people try to characterize the Warren Court uh, it wasn't that radical it, it didn't break free from the essential constraints that were placed uh, uh, by the Founding Fathers in the Constitution, at least as it's been interpreted, and Warren Court interpreted it in the same way, that, that generally the Constitution is a charter of negative liberties, says what the states can't do to you, says what the federal government can't do to you, but it doesn't say what the federal government or the state government must do on your behalf. Uh, and that hasn't shifted, and one of the, uh, I think, uh, the tragedies of the civil rights movement was um, 
because the civil rights movement became so court-focused, uh, I think that there was a tendency to lose track of the political and community organizing and, and activities on the ground that are able to put together the actual coalitions of power through which you bring about redistributive uh, change. Uh, and uh, in some ways, we still suffer from that. Let's talk with Karen. Good morning, Karen. You're on Chicago Public Radio. Hi. Um, the gentleman made the point that the Warren Court wasn't uh, terribly radical. My question is, um, with economic changes, my question is, is it too late for that kind of reparative work economically, and is that the appropriate place for reparative economic work to take place? You mean the court? The courts, or would it be legislation at this point? Yeah. I uh, you know, I, maybe I'm, I'm showing my bias here as a, as a legislator as well as a law professor, but uh, you know, I'm not optimistic about bringing about uh, major uh, redistributive uh, uh, change uh, through the courts. Um, you know, the institution just isn't structured that way. Uh, um, you, know, you you just look at very rare examples where in during the desegregation era the court was willing to for example order uh uh you know changes that cost money to a local school district and the court was very uncomfortable with it it was hard to manage it was hard to figure out uh you start getting into all sorts of uh separation of powers issues and, uh you know in terms of uh, the court monitoring or or engaging in a process uh that essentially is administrative and and takes a, a lot of time. Uh, um, you know, I, the, the court's just not very good at it, and politically, it's just it's very hard to legitimize opinions from the uh, from the court in that regard. So, I mean, I think that uh, although you can craft theoretical justifications for it legally, um, you know, I think you can uh, any, any three of us sitting here could could come up with. Uh, a, a rationale for bringing about economic change through the courts. Plan's going to tax me more, isn't it? It's not that I want to punish your success. I just want to make sure that everybody who is behind you that they've got a chance at success too. Yeah, my grandparents served during World War II. He was a soldier in Patton's Army. She was a worker on a bomber assembly line. And together they shared the optimism of a nation that triumphed over the Great Depression and over fascism. They believed in an America where hard work paid off and responsibility was rewarded. And anyone could make it if they tried, no matter who you were, no matter where you came from, no matter how you started out. And these values gave rise to the largest middle class and the strongest economy that the world has ever known. It was here in America that the most productive workers, the most innovative companies turned out the best products on earth. And you know what? Every American shared in that pride and in that success, from those in the executive suites 
to those in middle management, to those on the factory floor. So you could have some confidence that if you gave it your all, you'd take enough home to raise your family and send your kids to school and have your health care covered, put a little away for retirement. And today, we're still home to the world's most productive workers. We're still home to the world's most innovative companies. But for most Americans, the basic bargain that made this country great has eroded. Long before the recession hit, hard work stopped paying off for too many people. But most of all, they are under assault from advocates of identity politics, people who believe that their version of social justice should override individual rights. These are the folks who are really dangerous to your rights. But in 2008, the House of Cards collapsed. And we all know the story by now. Mortgages sold to people who couldn't afford them, or even sometimes understand them. Banks and investors allowed to keep packaging the risk and selling it off. Huge bets and huge bonuses made with other people's money on the line. Regulators who were supposed to warn us about the dangers of all this, but looked the other way or didn't have the authority to look at all. It was wrong. It combined the breathtaking greed of a few with irresponsibility all across the system. And we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. This is not just another political debate. This is the defining issue of our time. This is a make or break moment for the middle class and for all those who are fighting to get into the middle class. Because what's at stake is whether this will be a country where working people can earn enough to raise a family, build a modest savings, own a home, secure their retirement. Now, in the midst of this debate, there are some who seem to be suffering from a kind of collective amnesia. After all that's happened, after the worst economic crisis, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, they want to return to the same practices that got us into this mess. In fact, they want to go back to the same policies that stacked the deck against middle-class Americans for way too many years. And their philosophy is simple. We are better off when everybody is left to fend for themselves and play by their own rules. I am here to say they are wrong. I'm here in Kansas to reaffirm my deep conviction that we're greater together than we are on our own. I believe that this country succeeds when everyone gets a fair shot, when everyone does their fair share, 
when everyone plays by the same rules. These aren't Democratic values or Republican values. These aren't 1% values or 99% values. They're American values, and we have to reclaim them. You see, this isn't the first time America has faced this choice. At the turn of the last century, when a nation of farmers was transitioning to become the world's industrial giant, we had to decide. Would we settle for a country where most of the new railroads and factories were being controlled by a few giant monopolies that kept prices high and wages low? Would we allow our citizens and even our children to work ungodly hours in conditions that were unsafe and unsanitary? Would we restrict education to the privileged few? Because there were people who thought massive inequality and exploitation of people was just the price you paid for progress. Theodore Roosevelt disagreed. He was the Republican son of a wealthy family. He praised what the titans of industry had done to create jobs and grow the economy. He believed then what we know is true today, that the free market is the greatest force for economic progress in human history. It's led to a prosperity and a standard of living unmatched by the rest of the world. But Roosevelt also knew that the free market has never been a free license to take whatever you can from whoever you can. He understood that the free market only works when there are rules of the road that ensure competition is fair and open and honest. And so he busted up monopolies, forcing those companies to compete for consumers with better services and better prices. And today, they still must. He fought to make sure businesses couldn't profit by exploiting children or selling food or medicine that wasn't safe. And today, they still can't. And in 1910, Teddy Roosevelt came here to Osawatomie, and he laid out his vision for what he called a new nationalism. Our country, he said, means nothing unless it means the triumph of a real democracy of an economic system under which each man shall be guaranteed the opportunity to show the best that there is in him. Okay, positive rights are only compulsory. Positive rights are compelled. Positive rights views often conflict with negative rights views, as you can see. I want to defend my life. I want to defend my right to liberty of contract. You want to force me to care for you. So a negative rights view and a positive rights view are now in conflict. The United States is based on negative rights. It is not based on positive rights. The US Constitution is based on negative rights. The Constitution of, say, South Africa is based on positive rights. The, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man is based on positive rights. 
like the right to housing, the right to food, the right to medical care. None of this is in the United States Constitution because the Constitution doesn't believe that you have the right to take the collective and use the collective gun against me to force me to give you services. The U.S. Constitution is specifically designed to undercut regimes of positive rights. That's what the Constitution is designed to do. Now, the part of the Constitution nobody talks about, the structural Constitution, the part that matters the most, you know, Articles 1, 2, and 3, and all the rest, all of those articles are all about checks and balances designed to prevent people from leveraging power against you. The idea is that if there's a majority that wants to leverage power against you here, well, there's going to be another majority in the states that are going to stop you. There's a majority in the Senate, that will be checked by a majority in the Congress. There's a majority in both houses of Congress, that will be checked by the President. Checks and balances were designed to stop tyranny of the majority. This is obvious from the Federalist Papers. It's obvious from the text of the Constitution. It's no surprise then, because the Constitution is based on a philosophy of negative rights, that it has come under dire attack from advocates of positive rights. These positive rights advocates in the United States happen to be on the political left, which makes sense. Many on the left, or leftist philosophy, is not about belief in God, it's about belief in government. It's not about the belief in individuals and rights that accrue to you at its individual, it's about the power of the collective, what we can do together. As Barack Obama said in 2012 at the DNC, as the Democratic National Convention put up on their big platform, the only thing that we all have in common is the government. Now, these positive rights advocates in the United States on the left, they've gone one step further. They actually suggest that positive rights ought to accrue not on the basis of individual identity, it's not that you have a positive right to health care, they ought to accrue on the basis of identity group. They say that intersectionality, meaning the overlapping experiences we all have as members of different groups, right? You have an experience as a black person that's different from the experience of a white person. You have an experience as a woman that's different from the experience that you have as a man. So a black woman has a different experience than a white man. Right? This idea means that as a member of these different groups, there's a hierarchy of ability to exercise your positive rights in this supposedly discriminatory system. So whites have more rights in the view of intersectionality theorists than black people do. Women have fewer rights than men do. So you have this sort of hierarchy of discrimination, according to a lot of folks on the left. And therefore, the government has to act collectively to protect the positive rights of these various groups. In this view, negative rights, a regime that says we are all individuals who are free, and we're not members of groups, we're all individuals with individual rights. In the positive rights view, in the leftist view, negative rights reinforce existing hierarchies and thus must be overturned. Negative rights are the obstacle to freedom in this particular view. So under the auspices of identity politics, the folks outside chanting about their group identity, under those auspices, their belief is that the entire negative rights infrastructure, the Constitution of the United States, individual rights, this all must be torn down by the collective in favor of a more just distribution of positive rights. It's something that makes the world more equal, something that ensures that all groups are treated fairly. Now, there's only one problem with this. Group justice does not actually mean justice. Social justice does not mean justice. Individual justice means justice. You want to be treated as an individual because you are an individual. We don't want any group discriminated against, but that's because we believe in individuals, not groups. The idea that we are supposed to rejigger the hierarchy by obliterating the individual, that individuals don't matter anymore. Instead, we're going to judge you based on your group identity, and then we're going to decide who gets rights and who doesn't, is actually an evil philosophy. But that philosophy is now being pushed by many folks on the left. Now, fortunately, that's not a future that we have to accept.
because there's another view about how we build a strong middle class in this country, a view that's truer to our history, a vision that's been embraced in the past by people of both parties for more than 200 years. It's not a view that we should somehow turn back technology or put up walls around America. It's not a view that says we should punish profit or success or pretend that government knows how to fix all of society's problems. It is a view that says, in America, we are greater together. When everyone engages in fair play and everybody gets a fair shot and everybody does their fair share. Good morning and welcome to Odyssey on WBEZ Chicago 91.5 FM. And we're joined by Barack Obama, who is Illinois State Senator from the 13th District and a senior lecturer in the law school at the University of Chicago. And more court interpreted it in the same way that, that generally the Constitution is a charter of negative liberties, says what the states can't do to you, says what the federal government can't do to you, but it doesn't say what the federal government or the state government must do on your behalf. Uh, and that hasn't shifted. And one of the, uh, I think, uh, the tragedies of the civil rights movement was um, because the civil rights movement became so court-focused, uh, I think that there was a tendency to lose track of the political and community organizing and, and activities on the ground that are able to put together the actual coalitions of power through which you bring about redistributive uh, change. Uh, and uh, in some ways, we still suffer from that. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America.